From 1337 until 1453, over the course of 100 years, England repeatedly invaded France on the pretext that her kings had a right to the French throne. England's army dominated the battles and roamed the French countryside, destroying everything in their path. And Charles VII, the uncrowned king of France, failed to build a strong army, and it fell to an illiterate peasant girl to rally the forces that would change the history of France. Hi, I'm Valerie Jackson, and today we're going between the lines of The Maid, a novel of Joan of Arc by Kimberly Cutter. Kimberly was the West Coast editor for W Magazine for over four years, and she's written for Harper's Bazaar, for Vanity Fair, New York Magazine, and is currently a contributing editor to Marie Claire. The Maid is her first novel. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kimberly. Hi, thank you. I've been looking forward to this. Um, but I must, I must ask, though, I read somewhere that more books have been written about Joan of Arc than any other woman in history. So what compelled you to write yet another one? Yeah, um, more more books have been written about Joan of Arc than any other woman in history. And um, I basically, I, I became fascinated by her just after reading a little bit about her life um, and realizing that I even though she'd sort of always existed as a as a vague iconic figure in my head, I really hadn't known her story and how incredible her story was. And so I started reading about her. I sort of ordered all of the major books that had been written about her and read them. And there are wonderful books that have been written about Joan of Arc, um, particularly biographies. Um, but as I read them, I, I, I kept thinking, what was this like for her, though? Because she was 17 when she went and convinced the king of France to put her in charge of his army, she was an illiterate peasant. She would have had a totally different perspective on everything that happened than the historians who are taking this overview of her life from a distance of 700 years. Um, so I, I really wanted to get under her skin and try and imagine what the experience was like for her. Well, before we get under her skin a little bit, which I'd like to do too, let's explain <laughs> the historical or the political background briefly at the time. I mentioned that it was during the Hundred Years' War. But right. what, at what point did Joan become involved in terms of her developing this sense of nationalism that she felt concerned about the future of France? Well, it's funny. There actually wasn't really any such... <laughs> thing as French nationalism until Joan of Arc. A country was a much vaguer concept back in those days. And um, she kind of, when she was born, the English had basically been kind of riding range over France, um, routinely attacking and, and um, pillaging France for, uh, I think, between 60 and 70 years. And so it was all anybody around her had ever known was being at the mercy of the English. And um, her village was attacked numerous times. She watched people that she knew die. And um, I think by the time she was 12, she began to believe that God was speaking to her. And um, and a few years after that, she began to believe that God was telling her that she needed to um, basically to go to save France, to go and convince King Charles to put her in charge of his army and um, lead them against the English. So that was sort of how it began for her. I think um, it was war was all she knew as a child, and mm. I was um, because I was going to say, well, I wonder why God would pick the topic of war to speak to her about, as opposed to the many, many, many other things that perhaps a saint rather 
could have talked to her about. But uh, absolutely, you, I you wonder know? that too. You know, <laughs> I mean, I to be honest with you, I um, I don't actually feel like it's possible to know. I don't have an opinion about whether God actually spoke to her or whether she was mentally ill. I don't think there's any way to know that because there um, are some people who say that she was schizophrenic and that. Right. Yeah, and that's though she didn't. Though interestingly, from. she didn't have a lot of the symptoms. She didn't display a lot of the symptoms mm-hmm. that schizophrenics display. But I think for me, um, what was really fascinating was that she believed she had the full experience. She heard these voices. She saw these visions of of God and the saints telling her mm-hmm. that she needed to fulfill this mission. And I was interested in the complete conviction that that gave her. Um, I don't I, I can't pretend to know why right. whether it was God or not yeah. speaking to her um why why that topic would be chosen well the she had three saints that um, brought her these messages Saint uh, right. Michael the archangel of course and Saint Catherine and Saint Margaret why do you right. think those were the three that would come and and be her vision did she have any particular affinity for any of these she saints? did. Um, you know, she grew up in a church where those were those were very famous saints. Those were those were saints were almost like superheroes back in those days. Um, you know, they were sort of these um, sort of supreme beings, but that were that were had a human face on them, mm-hmm. so that humans could relate to them in a way. And um, so those were those three saints were um, saints whose stories she knew and um, w- would have been familiar with. Mm. How does a 17-year-old girl, peasant girl, illiterate, convince a king to not only let her join his army, but to, in fact, in a way, lead his army? I mean, has she she had any military training? Does she know strategy, military strategy? Why would a king even allow a a girl like this to, to do this? You know, um, it, it, France at that point had, had basically run out of options. So Joan of Arc came at a, at a very essential time. Um, they had the army was so dispirited by all of the defeats that they had suffered, and the morale of the country was so horrible that um, they kind of didn't have any other way to turn. Really, they were they were stuck. Um, Orleans was under siege and had been for eight months, and there was no sign of that siege being able to to be raised. Um, the the king himself didn't have kind of the will to rally any kind of army. He was cowering down in southern France and um, and kind of afraid of his own shadow. Hated war and um, and you know here out of nowhere comes this creature who has such perfect conviction and belief that as soon as she starts talking, people are riveted by her. I mean, she's so illuminated by faith that you you just can't help but pay attention and. I think it was at a moment in time when the country needed that more than anything in the world. Something they didn't, to they believe. They lost their their yeah. spirit, yeah. Someone, and she restored their spirit. Mm-hmm. Something or someone to believe in. Uh, exactly. And, yet uh, he didn't. He didn't just take her on face value, though, because he put her through several tests to try. He to did prove actually several that, months of tests. Why, why don't um, you talk about that for a moment? Well. There were all kinds of tests. I mean, she was interviewed many, many times by different theologians and scholars and churchmen. She was also examined several times to um, make sure that she, in fact, was a virgin because in those days they believed that if someone professed to have been um, 
have been spoken to by God and they weren't a virgin, that probably they were possessed by the devil. Mm. So, um, so. so that, all right, she convinced the king. He was desperate. He wanted to try something new, thought this young girl might be uh, a motivating or an inspiring figurehead, if you will. Uh, was she just that, a figurehead, or did she get actually involved in the battles? She was very much involved in the battles. Um, she, you know, she did not have military training, but when after she had left her village as a young girl, um, she went to this town of Vaucoulour where there were several um, uh, where she befriended several knights who gave her some training. She she had taught herself how to ride a horse already, and they gave her t- training with lances and um, and kind of. Filled her in on on war strategy. Um, mm-hmm. and she actually turned out to be incredible with the lance. Um, she was she was really gifted that way. Um, people said sort of unbelievably so, and so she had had some rudimentary training. Um, uh, and I think I think what she also had, you know, she had these um incredible premonitions, where, uh, for example, um, when when they went to Orleans, she um. There was some hesitation in the beginning on the part of the generals about whether they were going to follow her. You know, there were not everybody sort of mm-hmm. immediately fell in line. There was lots. There was lots of doubt and lots of people saying, "Well, what are we going to do? We're going to follow this sixteen-year-old into battle." Um, but she would have. She had this incredible premonition in Orleans where um, there was actually some fighting that was going to start, an attack that was going to start without her, and she sat up. Out of, a, out, of, out of sleep and said, oh, my God, they're attacking without me and mm. rallied her men and then went to lead the force and, and led the first attack on, on one of the um, fortresses that the English had built around Orleans. So she, in a way, she, she very much inserted herself and quickly proved to have an, an eerie kind of um, uh, sort of intuition about how to fight and, and, and how to strategize. And the French really needed that. Um, they tended to be very chivalrous and very their, – their battle style tended to be um, old-fashioned and um, formal in a way that the English had abandoned a long time ago and the English were ignoring – the old rules of chivalry. Ah, yes. And so she and she said, forget it, you know, forget giving them warning ahead of time. We need to actually we need to fight the way that they're fighting. Mm-hmm. And so she was willing to um, engage in a way that the French had not been willing to engage before. Well, one even more surprising than convincing the king to let her lead or be a part of the, the army was the fact that she, in fact, convinced Tens and thousands of soldiers. I know, to, I know. To, to, to follow her too, and not just to follow her, but to be good when they followed yeah. her. They had to do confession. They had, you know, they couldn't have prostitutes in the camps. Um, I, that's a hard one to believe. Yeah. Come on, tell me, tell me how you came to this conclusion that she was that strong, and that the men all obeyed her. It was with respect to these moral restraints. Well, you know, her life is actually – Joan of Arc's life is actually incredibly well documented. So there are, you know, thousands of pages of documents of testimonies um, from from the trial before she was killed and then her restitution trial 20 years after she was killed where they um, declared her having been wrongfully executed. And all of these people who had known her throughout her life came from all over France to testify about what they knew of her. So there there actually is this incredible documentation about the effect that she mm-hmm. had on people. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't know if you've ever been, you probably have been around someone who is unbelievably convicted mm-hmm. and unbelievably like full of a, a kind of illuminated by their own faith. Mm-hmm. But that's so powerful. I mean, if you yeah. believe in all of yeah. your heart yeah. that God has told you to raise this army and to save France, if you believe that with your whole heart, that is like, it's like the sun shining out of you. I mean, it's so powerful. Well, and I think people really respond to that. Well, wasn't there a prophecy, though, um, about uh, France yeah. in terms that a woman, one woman would ruin it, but another would restore it? Yeah, it was that a woman would would ruin France, and a maid, a virgin, would a maid, uh, from right. from the forests of Lorraine would would restore the country. That, that title, the maid, or being the maid, was very important to her. Why was that? Well, again, like I said, the um, first of all, the fact that it, it it was widely believed that if a woman believed she was being spoken to by God and she wasn't a maid or a virgin, ah, okay. um, that she was possessed by the devil. Right. So there was that. Also, it was it would have been impossible for her to sleep in these camps and fight with these men. I mean, for months at a time, dressed as a woman, there would just there was no way that people would have allowed her to participate in the way that she wanted to participate. She was a full active participant. So in order to do that, she needed to dress as a boy and to present herself in a way as sexless. Yes, but wasn't that illegal or against the church to, for the opposite sex to dress? Like, it was. It so was. But Was she given a, a, an exemption? Uh, yes, exemption. Well, she wasn't. I mean, she basically just, she said that God had told her to dress as a boy, that it was... Um, that the saints had cleared it and that it was deemed appropriate. And, you know, I think I think it made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. people didn't fight it until yeah. um, she was taken captive later and, and they wanted to, you know, the English yeah. wanted to find a reason to, to kill her, basically. Well, there was a line in the book uh, from uh, Joan where she talked about herself being a going from a cowardly daughter to becoming someone else. The virgin, and she wasn't quite sure that a virgin was human or could be quite human. Do you? Do you yeah, there. Well, there is that sort of mythical status of the virgin, right? I mean, um, I feel like there's this sense that a virgin is unsoiled, and particularly mm-hmm. back then, there was that that sense that there was a kind of a holiness still in 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 a virgin, imbued in a virgin that um, that a woman who who had actually you know become sexually active wouldn't have. Um, and I, I think you know there's also a long history of virgin saints and virgin martyrs and virgin visionaries. And in a way, she was you know there are all these different factors. In a right. way, she was sort of falling in line with that. Um, but I bet she I, – I, I, I sincerely believed – believe that she – you know, God had – she believed that God told her when she was 12 years old to stay a virgin. And I think it was a very important part of her belief that she needed to be this kind of pure vessel in order for the voices to continue to speak right. through her. Well, if you've just joined us, I'm Valerie Jackson and I'm talking with Kimberly Cutter, author of The Maid, a novel of Joan of Arc. Um, Joan uh, said that she um, received visions and, and dreams and um, some from uh, saints. How, how did Joan's dreams differ from her visions, if at all? Well, her dreams tended to be premonitions. I mean, the, the dreams that she had, she had these incredible premonitions. She 
Uh, one of her premonitions was that the French would be defeated at Rouvray, which was a battle that they were, in fact, um, defeated. Defeated, and she made that she made that prediction, you know, several days before it happened. There's no way she could have known. Um, she she predicted how long she would be in power for. You know, she said to the king very early on when she first met him, "Use me well, because I will be gone in two years." Um, she knew that she did not have long to live, and she. Um, you know, prophesied basically when she would be taken captive by the English. She also prophesied three different times the the wounds that she would suffer in battle the day before the battles. She knew exactly where she would be wounded and how. So, so there are these things that you simply just can't. Her dreams are uncanny. I mean, they're the they're the part of the puzzle that doesn't really fit because you just can't explain it. You know, maybe she was schizophrenic, but where did the dreams come from? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's that's the part that's kind of the wonderful mystery of her. Well, the visions, the, the visions were of the saints. Is that correct? Yes, I'm sorry. Okay. Yes, the saints. So that's the differentiation. Is the dreams tended to be um, prophecies, mm-hmm. and the saints actually came to her while she was awake, and would speak to her, and she would see them. She she said that what would happen would be when she was usually sitting somewhere quiet, um, she would often in nature was when she had the best time receiving these visions was she would sit very quietly and pray and um, a a light would sort of come to the right of her and um, like a blinding Mm -hmm. almost beam of sunlight and then these these, um, visions would appear and and the saints would speak to her and would tell her what to do. When she got some of these visions or when she received her visions, I... I I noticed that she didn't always obey them, if if, if that's the right word, obey. Um, can you give us a few times when she didn't obey and why she might not have? Because well, usually she did do what the what the saints told her. If they say leave now right away, you've got to go. She would get up and go. Yes. But um, yes. Uh, but you know, I guess um, well, the most sort of dramatic example of that was when um, she after. They had she and her men had raised the siege of Orleans and had um, had had this incredible victory at Pate. Um, she took the king Charles um, up to Reims Cathedral to have him crowned because um, up until that point he hadn't been crowned. And so, in France, the crowning was so important that you never um, people wouldn't take him seriously as a king until he was crowned mm-hmm. in Reims Cathedral. Every king s- since Clovis had been had been crowned there. And so she knew that it was incredibly important to get him there. And then as soon as he was crowned, she said, now, you know, the entire country was behind them at this point. This this was a turning point beyond belief. It was an unbelievable victory. And she said, now is the time for us to go to Paris. Now, because the English held Paris at this point, she said, now we can take Paris right now. And um, unfortunately, at that point, the king started to have second th- thoughts about further attacks. He 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 wasn't someone who liked war in the first place and he had a very powerful advisor who really uh, was a kind of negotiator who really <laughs> didn't like war. He mm-hmm. kind of uh, – George de la Tremoy was sort of playing both sides mm-hmm. and, um, and so he was saying to Charles, we do not need to fight anymore. This is where we need to start negotiating with Burgundy. We can negotiate to get Paris back. We do not need to fight. We do not need to attack Paris and she – knew very well that Burgundy had no intention of giving over Paris and never would unless it was by force, right? So she spent a long time trying to convince the king to let her attack. And he he wouldn't. He waffled and waffled. So finally, she got together a bunch of men um, with the Duke of Alençon, who was her best friend, and they went up to Paris to attack. And 
right before the attack, she didn't really um, she didn't have confirmation from her voices that that was the right thing to do. Um, they were silent about whether she should actually attack or not. And at the same time, she felt this enormous pressure to attack from the various generals who were fighting for her. And, you know, in some ways, I think that's a dramatic sort of turning point in Joan's life, just because she did go forward. It was that they attacked on a Sunday, which was something she'd never done Mm -hmm. before and was something that she had said she would never do. Mm -hmm. And so in a certain way, you can see this as a turning point where she sort of stopped listening to her inner guidance and uh, was overtaken either, you know, by a combination of pressures from other people and perhaps her own ego and her own sense of desperation that if they didn't attack now, there would be no there would be no chance. So, so it might be the, the stress and the the fame and the attention that might have been keeping her from hearing the voices later on, because later on they didn't come to her as frequently. Right, as they, used they didn't to. come. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, it's a really it's really hard to know what the truth is. I've read hundreds of books about John Bark now. You know, one of the one of the interesting um, points in in the book to me too was this. And I hope I'm not giving away too much, but she jumps a 70 foot jump. I know. <laughs> and uh, off of the. Off and that's of true. So the story is that she, when she was in prison, she was allowed to. She was imprisoned in a castle in northern France and she was allowed to walk on the roof. And when she heard that she was going to be sold to the English. Um, as a prisoner and and killed, she jumped off of the roof of the tower, um, which was a 70-foot jump. And she not only survived, she didn't even sprain an ankle. Amazing. But you know what the question to me, the question to me, though, was, was she trying to commit suicide or was she trying to escape by jumping? I know. I mean, I think think she probably knew. So many things in her life were so improbable. So many things had happened that were just impossible, that I think on one hand, she thought God would save her. Mm. And I think on another hand, she thought that if he didn't, she would rather die Mm. than be burned at the stake by the English, which she had a sense was sort of looming on her horizon. Mm. You know, when she she jumped, her thought was, I I fall into your hands, God, please, you know, I, it is up to you what you do with this. Well, you had mentioned earlier that the, uh, she had overheard the um, soldiers talking about how the um, how she was going to be sold to the English, which was mm-hmm. a very bad uh, alternative. Um, right. But usually, usually um, prisoners uh, were ransomed. Why was she not ransomed? And why did Charles, whom she made king, basically, why did he not uh, pay the ransom? Why did why did she fall out of favor with him? Well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the great tragedies of her story is that um, Charles didn't ransom her when she was taken prisoner. You know, I think, as I said, after she crowned him, I think there was a combination of things that happened with Charles. I think he became more confident Mm -hmm. and his longtime advisor, who he had sort of jettisoned Mm -hmm. while he and Joan were working together in the battles, his longtime advisor reinserted himself and said, look, enough of this bloodshed. We don't have the money to continue these battles. I don't want to fight anymore. You are a strong man. We can negotiate now. We don't have to fight. And I think he, George de la Tremoille, is is the advisor who convinced Charles of this. And I think Charles didn't want to fight anymore. I think Charles thought, okay, let's try negotiating. And Joan Joan didn't know, you know, she was a very simple person. She wasn't a person who was, you know, at all interested or or engaged with politics or negotiations. Um, 
You know, she had a very simple knowledge. And I think in a way, Charles kind of lost his use for her um, mm-hmm. when he decided to start negotiating He and he didn't want to continue fighting. Um, you know, he, he thought, well, what do we need? What do we need her for? Right. And, you know, he would sort of he did sort of half-heartedly send her out into a couple of other battles. And Without with, but supporting often, her. Without supporting her, exactly. And I, I think, sadly, I think he just sort of lost his use for her. She was somebody who had this amazing, astonishing place on the battlefield and in the hearts of the people of France, but didn't really have a place in court. Mm. Um, and, and, and in a way, I think he felt like was going getting in the way of his own advancement because the people were so behind Joan of Arc that I think he felt a little bit like she had usurped some of his power. Uh, I think yes. he felt a bit threatened by her. Um, and there was also a question of whether, you know, if she did take back Paris with her men, well, then would the people of Paris try and put her on the throne instead of Charles? That, well, she was, was actually more popular yeah. than Charles was. That's, that what, point, that's so. what his aide was whispering in his exactly, ear. You know? Exactly. Jeez. That was the fear. Right, right. Well, let's talk quickly about symbols before we run out of time. There were several sure. um, symbols throughout the book. The red dress. What was the – why the red dress that uh, Joan of Arc wore? Well, actually, um, peasant women in those days often wore often wore red dresses, okay. and so she actually Joan of Arc actually did wear a red dress, um, which is very stunning visually. But it's it's also just it comes out of a okay. fact. Okay, the white banner that uh, she bore. That, that right, she the Jesus Maria banner. Mm-hmm. Um, right, that was that was um, the the banner that was that she carried forward into battle that had. Um, the 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 symbol of uh, the saying of Jesus and and Mary on it and um, and was I think a way to remind people visually that they were sent by God to, to to fulfill this mission that this was actually this was what she said was that God wanted them to be fighting this battle that they had had enough beating down by the English and that if they if they followed the banner that they would triumph. Eventually, it seems that Joan herself obviously became a symbol also. Yes, absolutely. I think she still is a symbol, which is kind of amazing when you think of how long ago she lived. Um, And let me ask you this. How does Joan of Arc differ from many of the other female heroines that we read about or learn about? Um, Do you see a difference between them? And if so, what is it? Well, you know, I think one of the things that really drew me to her story was just that she, unlike a lot of other great women throughout history, she didn't stand behind a man. Um, she she wasn't married. She wasn't sort of putting all of her power behind a man. She was she was herself the vehicle for this mission. Um, she was the one who acted. She was the one who triumphed. She was the one who who fell. And so the story, it's wonderful because it's a very direct story. The story is about her. It's not about her supporting someone else. And that's very unusual in history uh, for a woman, mm. especially back then. You know. And why did you use three voices? You had the Joan's voice, the Joan's voice talking to her priest, and then the third person. Why did you break them up into those different voices? Um, you know, I think there are some things that it was wonderful having her talk to the priest as a way of sort of her telling the story. But once you actually get into once you kind of get deeply into the story, the battle scenes particularly are so much better rendered in third person. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. There are ways in which there's a perspective that you mm-hmm. can take with third person that you can't do with first person. And so I think I wanted a more cinematic effect once you were actually back in her memories of her life. I wanted to kind of paint the whole scene as opposed to just having the first person narrative. Right, right. 
Well, I've certainly enjoyed this so much, Kimberly. I've been talking with Kimberly Cutter. Kimberly's book is The Maid, a novel of Joan of Arc. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for joining us today and allowing us to go Between the Lines with you. Thanks very much, Valerie. Between the Lines is brought to you in part by Jack Mont Hospitality and a generous anonymous supporter. We thank you. To learn more about the books and authors featured on Between the Lines, go to our website at wabe.org slash btl and listen to an archived program. Or check out our suggested reading list for both children and adults. To subscribe to a podcast of the program, go to our website and click on Podcast. Be sure to join us next week for another engaging program because there's always more to learn when you go between the lines. The executive producer of this program is Lois Reitzes. Producer, Marjorie Lancer. Editor and technical producer, Mike Johns. Opening and closing music by Afro Blue. And I'm your host, Valerie Jackson. Between the Lines is a production of 90.1 WABE.